Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or to donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Last week we began our Light in the Dark series kind of briefly touching in the latter half of Isaiah chapter 8. And one of the things that I said last week, and I want to say again this morning, so that we can appreciate the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, we kind of have to understand the history of Isaiah chapter 8. You see, this is the way the scriptures have been written. It's, it's, it's written in a way that, sure, it can give you encouragement in the moment, but there's a context behind it. Uh, there's, the author is writing this to a, not just to you, but he's actually writing this to a particular people. And it's through what God is saying in them to the people that you and I observe the text and we find the blessing in it. For the Lord can speak to us as well. And so in order to understand the prophecy of nine, we have to understand kind of the history of that moment and the history of chapter eight. And so if you're a history buff, um, you're going to be excited. If you don't like history, this may be a little boring, but it's okay. Um, And hopefully it'll help kind of enlighten you as the sermon series progresses to better understand the moments. During the time of Isaiah, specifically this particular prophecy Um, Israel was a country divided, broken, and overrun by corrupt leaders. And to make matters worse, there was a, a rising Assyrian power that threatened their existence. And so hoping to repel this threat, the northern kingdom of Israel created a coalition with Syria And then in this coalition, the northern kingdom of Israel threatened the southern kingdom of Judah to join that coalition or face consequences. As a result, Judah and its king Ahaz were faced with three options. They they were in a bit of a dilemma and they had three options. The first option for Judah was to join Israel and Syria and oppose the invading Assyrian army. The second option for Judah was to actually pledge allegiance to the Assyrians and oppose Israel and Syria. And finally, the third option was to listen to the prophet Isaiah. Make no foreign alliances and trust in the word of the Lord. Now, as we look back at this, it's easy for us to look at King Ahaz and Judah and say, well, the option is obvious. Trust the Lord. But if you're in that moment and you're up against enemies in that circumstance, you can understand how there is a temptation in dark times to align with things outside of the word of the Lord. It's not easy. It's easier said than it is done. And so as we read in the history books, Ahaz chooses to pledge his allegiance to Assyria only ultimately to be betrayed by them. And Assyria will lead him and all of Judah into a time of exile and slavery. It was in this dark time of Israel's history, two kinds of Israelites emerged. Those who became angry with God because of their circumstances. 
And as a result, they abandoned God's word and they looked to other sources, outside sources for comfort. Remember, we talked about that last week and you could go back to the podcast and really get an understanding for what that looked like. But another group of Israelites emerged during these dark moments. And this group was the faithful few or the scripture commonly refers to as the remnant of God. It was a few people, a remnant of people that would commit to trusting God and keeping his word even while enduring times of deep darkness. And it was into this dire situation that Isaiah spoke these prophetic words of hope to encourage the faithful. And it's here in this situation where we get one of the most famous Christmas, one of the famous quoted Christmas prophecies pretty much of all time and that is found in Isaiah chapter 9 and so if you're there let's go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 Isaiah prophesying in a time of deep darkness and he says this but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought her into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now we're going to read this entire prophecy this morning, but I want to stop there. For the God-haters, Isaiah must have sounded crazy. But to the faithful, he spoke the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord brought them hope. Now I want you to notice in these first two verses, the grammar, the awkward grammar or language of Isaiah. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah speaks as if the present was in the past and the future was in the present. Grammatically speaking, we could say that the first two verses were written in what is called a prophetic presence. Isaiah's confidence in God's word was so strong that he speaks what is not yet as if it already is. Now, there's a valuable lesson in here for you and I that I want to pause and appreciate for a moment. God's word brings hope to those who are waiting in seasons of darkness. God's word brings hope to those who are waiting in seasons of darkness. I want you to get this. God's word pierces through darkness like light. Declaring to those who are willing to be faithful, it may be dark right now, but darkness will not last forever. And trust me, I get it. Easier said than done. One of the hardest things to do is to wait in the dark. One of the hardest things to do is to wait in the dark. But this is so important. When we wait, if we wait in the word... Something eternal is being produced inside of us. Waiting may feel like an enemy. 
But waiting in the word is actually an extremely powerful ally to the believer. I want you to know this. Throughout the Christian text, waiting on God is a major theme to a believer. I remember when P3, that's my son, we affectionately call him by a letter and a number. <laughs> Philip, my father's Philip, I'm Philip, you get the point. I chose that nickname because we'll be marketing it for his Heisman. Um, I remember when P3 made my wife and I wait. He must have been extra comfortable in that womb of hers because he didn't want to come out. I can remember taking walks and wondering, when is he going to come out? Some of you were there. Nine months and two weeks later... <laughs> It felt like forever because we were so excited and we were so curious about our son. But the one thing we wanted more than anything else was a healthy baby. So as hard as it was to wait for him to come, it was imperative that we waited the full nine months to take its course. You see, we knew something extremely important was taking place in the wait. Even though we couldn't see it. We knew vital organs were being developed and features necessary for him to survive and thrive outside of his mother's womb were taking shape in the wait. I want you to listen. To come too soon would have been harmful to his developments. To come too soon potentially could have threatened his life. As Christians... We wait on God. Even in dark seasons, when the temptation is to skip the wait and seek comfort from sources other than God, we must learn to wait in his word. Why? Because like my son in his mom's womb, something vital is taking place in the waits. So as Christians, we wait. But we refuse to allow the weight to erode our trust in the Lord. And here's the beauty of it all. God doesn't leave his people without his word. His word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It produces hope in the believer. A hope that declares, wait for it. Don't. Sell yourself short. Something greater is coming. And this is what the Lord, word of the Lord says to a people in exile through the prophet Isaiah. I know it's dark, but a great light is coming. To the hater, crazy. But to the faithful, hope. Hope. So here's the question. What are they waiting for? What will this great light actually accomplish? Isaiah continues to say in verses 3 through 5. Let's go there. You, this is Isaiah speaking. You have multiplied the nation. He's talking to God. You have increased its joy. They rejoice because you... 
They, re they rejoice because for you, as of the harvest, they will be glad. They will be glad as they divide the spoil. And I want you to pay attention to this part. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now that is too creative and too cool of a structure not to stop and admire. As I read through this particular portion of the prophecy, I began to admire Isaiah's prophetic flow. Did you catch it? Almost like lyrics to a song. The prophet recites five statements separated into two categories. Five metaphorical statements separated into two categories. Items that will be broken and items that will be burned. First, let's talk about the items that will be broken. He says, the yoke of burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. Notice all three items mentioned in the broken category are instruments of oppression. The yoke, the staff, and the rod are all tools used by oppressors to punish, control, and weigh down those they've enslaved. Systems maintained by the privileged and the strong designed to exploit the weak will be shattered in the name of Jesus. Now let's look at the items that will be burned. He says, every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment rolled in blood. In the first section, all the items that were mentioned were instruments of oppression. In this second section, all the items mentioned are parts of a soldier's wardrobe. Isaiah, in his poetic flow, paints a picture of an advancing army marching loudly in the distance, covered in garments of blood. Can we just pause for a moment and take into consideration who Isaiah is prophesying to in this moment? It's not to you necessarily, but he's prophesying to a people who are in darkness. I can only imagine how real this must have felt to the people of God. To you and I, who've never experienced warfare in our front yards, maybe not as impactful. But to the men, women, and children of Judah and Israel, who were still suffering from maybe even some kind of PTSD, from being under siege by an invading army, what Isaiah was saying was dreadful. Everything Isaiah was describing, Israel had experienced firsthand. And isn't this exactly what the word of the Lord does to us all? It speaks to our moment. Have you ever opened up the word and just felt like, man, God, did you write this for me? Have you ever maybe sat in a sermon or went to a, a, some type of teaching and sat there and as the minister under the anointing of God preaching the word of God, you felt like, man, you're speaking a word. No one else could be here. I feel like this is just for me. This is what the word of the, of the Lord does. It discerns our darkness. And though it may hurt momentarily, it always offers us hope. It's to these people. In this dark moment, 
that the prophet has the audacity <laughs> to declare a day is coming when you and your children will no longer need to worry about the sufferings of slavery or the horrors of war. Everything that currently has you bound up and full of fear will ultimately be burned and broken. For unto us a child is born. To us a sign, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. There's so much to unpack from this popular Christmas verse. But I want to finalize this moment by pointing to you three things. The first one is this. Number one, verse two, Isaiah 9, verse 2, identifies or talks about a people who are in deep darkness. But verse 6 reveals to us who those people are. And not just Israel, but it's you and I. It's us. The second thing is the great light of verse 2 is also identified here in verse 6. Notice this light is not a philosophical idea. This light is not a religious system. This light is not a scientific breakthrough. This light is not a new technology. This light is not the universe. This light is not some kind of force that lives inside of us all. But in a bit of a plot twist, the prophet reveals to us that this great light will actually be a baby boy. And this baby boy will be given some of the most audacious names and claims of any man in human history. Isaiah says, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. In other words, one whose wisdom inspires awe. Unlike the corrupt kings of Israel, this king possesses divine wisdom. And he has no need to consult the experts of the earth. He shall be called Mighty God. If you thought the first title was a little bold, this claim overtakes all every other claim this baby boy is Emmanuel literally God with us and then Isaiah says something a little head scratching he says and he shall be called everlasting father now of the four descriptions this one is probably the most confusing first it's hard to imagine a newborn baby being a father and second Isaiah also refers to him as a son. But here's a little Christmas theology for you this morning. And I think it's important for us to understand. Some have used this scripture as evidence to claim that Jesus was both the son and the father of the Trinity. But this is the heresy known as modalism, and it's simply untrue. The title Everlasting Father is not a reference to the Trinitarian use of father, but it simply refers to the nature of a king who lovingly cares for his people by providing for them and protecting them. And the final title given to this baby boy is Prince of Peace. 
Isaiah prophesies of the increase of his kingdom and of peace. There will be no end. So what does it mean to live in everlasting peace? Think about that. What does it mean to live in everlasting peace? I want to tell you a story. Over 15 million lives were lost in what was called the Great War, World War I. With some of the most brutal warfare taking place on what was called the Western Front, artillery bombardments, massive infantry advancements, machine guns, barbed wire, and hundreds and hundreds of miles of trenches characterized this front. Not to mention both sides in an effort to gain ground used new military technology on this front. Tanks and aircraft and also poisonous gas. Though the true death toll of the Western Front will never be known, it's estimated that at least 4 million people were killed along the front. But on Christmas Day, 1914, a moment of light pierced through the great darkness of this front. Let me explain. On Christmas Eve, the sounds of guns firing and shells exploding began to fade in a particular portion of the Western Front. And instead of explosions... Men's voices could be heard singing Christmas hymns. One soldier wrote, first the Germans would sing one of their carols. And then we would sing one of ours. Until we all started up, oh come all ye faithful. And the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fideles. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. The next morning, Christmas Day, German soldiers emerged from their trenches, calling out, Merry Christmas in English. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Merry Christmas. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Soon, soldiers from the other side began to slowly emerge, calling out Merry Christmas. And in the place that had experienced some of the most horrific kinds of warfare the world has ever seen, gifts were exchanged, food was shared, and games were played. There's even a couple of written accounts in which someone brought out a soccer ball, and there might have been a friendly match right there on the Western Front. For a short time, both sides of the front experienced a brief moment of peace. But hostilities would soon return 
for some later that day and for others a few short days later. Can I submit to you something today? This is Advent. This is Christmas. Santa Claus is fine. I have nothing against him. I'm not going to tell you to stop celebrating Santa. The nativity scene is beautiful. The barn is beautiful, but I hate to burst some of your bubbles. It wasn't a barn. The date is wrong. Not going to mess you up. So what the heck is Christmas? I hope your children are in kids' ministry right now. Here's what Advent, which means coming, here's what Advent really communicates to us. And here's what that story communicates to us. We recognize that the best humanity can do is a truce, but not real peace. In fact, did you know Real War I was, considered, was called the war to end all wars? Only several years later to have World War II, which would amass an even greater amount of destruction. We recognize that the best humanity can do is a truce, but not real peace. But we also recognize the coming of a baby boy, fragile, lying down in a trough or a manger, whatever you prefer. A boy who would accomplish what no man could accomplish in human history. A boy who would accomplish what you and I could never accomplish, even in our own marriages. A boy who would be able to bring something greater than we could ever imagine. Because you see, hidden in verse 6 is a double advent. Two comings is hidden in verse 6. In the first coming of Christ as a baby boy, he has delivered us from sin and brought us peace with God by way of the cross. In his second coming, he'll deliver us from our suffering and establish an everlasting peace on earth. Are you with me? This is the double advent of verse 6. I'm going to say that again. In his first coming, this baby boy, he delivers us from sin, the oppression and the bondage of sin, and he brings peace between us and God. And he'll come back, and in that second coming, when he comes back, he'll literally be on the throne of David, and everybody will see him for who he is, his king. And he'll not only bring an end to sin, but he'll also bring an end to suffering. And he'll establish an everlasting peace on earth. Not a truce, but a peace. The Western Front teaches us a few things. Humanity can't keep the peace, but it longs for it. It longs for it. As Christians alive today, we are privileged, amen, to partake of one of the most profound worship experiences in the history of mankind. Our worship is a mixture of celebration and suffering. I don't know if you understand, as Christians living in this time of history, we are privileged to participate and a profound worship experience in which while we worship God, we live in the already but the not yet. 
our worship is a mixture of celebrating what Christ has accomplished in his first advent and also longing for what he will accomplish in his second when he makes all things new. Let us together this morning celebrate the coming of Christ, the baby boy, but let us together also long when he comes back and he makes all things new. I just, want to, I just want to finish uh, with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we absolutely adore you. Your plan, your wisdom is above and beyond anything that we could ever think of or imagine. Your desire for us and for your people is so deep and so true. Jesus, we take this season to magnify and lift you up. We take this moment to look back at what you've done on the cross. You've declared guilty sinners not guilty. Those of us that were enemies of God, you reconciled us with the Father. And you've brought peace between man and God for those who would trust and believe in Jesus. But we look ahead to a power that has conquered death. We look ahead to a day, and we long for a day, where we will experience everlasting peace on earth. And when you will make all things new. And finally, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are privileged and honored that you call us to partner with you now and bringing many sons and daughters to light. And so we lift up the Bay Area. We lift up every city in this Bay Area. May your name be lifted up. We lift up every church in the Bay Area, every pastor faithfully committed to your words. In the name of Jesus, we declare that more would come to see and know the beauty and the glory and the love of your salvation. May our cities be transformed and changed. May our neighborhoods, may our neighbors know the love of God because we're there. And may you raise up a remnant, a faithful remnant in the bay that would trust in your word even in dark times. So we worship you. We love you. We thank you. I pray a blessing upon every family represented here today. I pray you would be with us for the rest of this week as we continue to posture our hearts in worship. Let your word not come back void, but let it accomplish everything it's been sent out to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen, amen.